what a medicine that increases plasticity does is it, it injects some flexibility into the cognitive rigidity. And well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Well, what if you think about it another way? And, and it, it's a chance for the brain to really do a little rewiring. I'm putting this in quotes. Um, you know, we know that the, that the, that the neurons, the brain cells make new uh, sort of dendrites, like new arms, they make new synapses, which is new connections with other brain cells. Um, we know that, that ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, ibogaine, these things all increase plasticity in the brain for a certain period of time. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. It is absolutely my stoke and pleasure to get to welcome Dr. Julie Holland, a psychiatrist, a psychopharmacologist, a best-selling author of Weekends at Bellevue, Moody Bitches, uh, Good Chemistry, uh, right here, your most recent, as well as a host of other books on psychopharmacology and the ways we humans feel and heal, a, a musician, a rock and roll queen, uh, a, a wife and mother, and an all-around advocate for uh, good things, healing, common sense, research, and play in the world. Julie, uh, welcome to Homegrown Humans. Uh, stoked to connect. Thank you for having me. That was a lovely introduction. It's all true. All those things are true. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what, what I didn't know was true until we were most recently uh, at a conference together was that you were, how OG you were in the psychedelic advocacy space and that yours and Rick Doblin's relationship, the founder of MAPS, goes all the way back to the 80s. Yeah, I met, I met Rick in 1985. I mean, I think, you know, my, I think I got very involved uh, sort of unknowingly in harm reduction, actually, when I was a teenager because I uh, accidentally ingested something different from what I was was hoping to, and I can tell you that story later. But so I was I was really interested in drug policy from a very early age. Uh, I was a pre med at Penn. Uh, my major I love to talk about this because it's the reason I went to Penn. Our ma my major was called the biological basis of behavior. It was just like a combination of bio and psych and neurology, psychology. It was all about the brain. There was a concentration within that major, which was psychopharmacology. So at undergrad, I was very much studying drugs. I also minored in human sexuality. So I was actually studying drugs and sex. Uh, and I was fronting a band. So I was very involved in music. Um, but in 1985, I met Rick Doblin. He, I had read uh, an article about uh, ecstasy, MDMA. At that time, they were calling it Adam. Um, and in that article, they mentioned several people, Lester Grinspoon and George Greer and Rick Doblin. And uh, I was living in a fraternity that summer and I had access to free long distance calling. Uh, this was back when it cost money if you wanted to, you know, long distance calling costs more. Uh, there was just a phone in the room and I called Rick Doblin and I called George Greer. I called Lester Grinspoon. Uh, found all these people. This is before, you know, internet, where it was, I don't know how I did this. 
Uh, I had an amazing phone conversation with Rick and then he came to visit me. I was living in a castle um, on Penn's campus. One of the fraternities uh, was called the castle and I was living like in a turret. Uh, so he came to visit me and we actually took MDMA together right before it became illegal, like the day before basically. But it was uh, probably my second time taking it, I think. But um, I was the first time I took MDMA, I was really intrigued by how quiet my head got. And I thought about how many psychiatric patients could, if nothing else, if they could even just experience this quiet for an hour or two, like how peaceful that could be. I've, I've always been very interested in schizophrenia. Um, and I had this idea that, you know, it would quiet the voices. So that research still hasn't been done. And I'm, I'm really hoping that we can do a MAPS sponsored study at some point, like a very small pilot study. Uh, to prove me wrong or right. But basically since uh, June of 1985, <clears throat> I've been friends with Rick. This was before MAPS. Um, and, you know, and like, what, what was that experience in the turret like? Well, um, Rick tells a story very often about how his printer spit out this one single page become more than a dream, which is true, it did. Um, you know, I'm... I'm used to printers doing weird things, so I didn't I didn't get particularly freaked out about it. But it was it, it is a great sort of origin story for our friendship that we, um, you know, we both saw the potential clinical utility in this drug of abuse, and uh, we, you know, I sort of I was I was pretty sure I was going to be a psychiatrist, so I was very excited that there was potentially a new tool for psychiatry. Um, it's one of the things that sort of fueled my uh, my passion. You know, when you are an undergrad and you're pre-med and you're taking, you know, all these classes that you don't necessarily want to take, but you have to, you know, and then you have to take the MCATs and then you have to go to med school and take all these classes that you don't really want to take, but you have to, you know, you need like a, a mighty lure to sort of pull you through that process. And for me, it really was, you know, the carrot uh, at the end of the stick or whatever, which was like um, doing MDMA research, uh, educating people about MDMA. You know, I, I edited a, a book called Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. It was, it was actually the first book I did. It was the most important thing that I wanted to do. So I did that first. Um, and what I did really with the Ecstasy book was I, I assigned chapters to every person that I had called that summer on the phone, you know? Uh, at George Greer did a chapter and Dave Nichols, who I called, he did a chapter and Lester, I think I interviewed Lester um, and stayed in touch with him for a long time. So I, that was sort of my entree to the psychedelic research community um, was assigning chapters for that book and just staying, staying in touch with everybody I'd gotten in touch with in 1985. But I mean, that's um, no small thing. That, like, that is career suicide. Like, as you know, if you're trying to do the sort of <laughs> peer-reviewed, respectable psychiatrist route, for you to be flying your freak flag back then. Yeah. Well, I don't. You know, I've been really lucky in terms of career suicide, and maybe it's not luck. I mean, I am. Uh, I am smart. I communicate well. I am easy on the eyes. I'm good at sort of being a little flirty, a little manipulative, and you know, I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say like I'm a schemer and I'm Machiavellian, but I, you know, I have, I often will play the long game with somebody um, and make myself a little vulnerable uh, to solidify a relationship. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an adult uh, human primate. We're, we're programmed really um, as social primates. 
to be uh, obligatorily gregarious. You know, that's how our species survives. So um, it's never been career suicide for me, but it's always been right on the edge. You know, I've definitely had, I had the psychiatrist I really looked up to like a mentor, this guy, Jack Hershowitz. And I said, you know, it's really one of the reasons why I ended up going to med school or doing this residency is because I really believe in this. And he's like, don't say that. It makes you sound crazy, you know? Um, but he didn't say, you're crazy. He was just like, don't say it that way. So even then, you know, he's trying to advise me. Um, when I was at Bellevue, I, I, uh, I had a job uh, working Saturday nights and Sunday nights running the psychiatric emergency room at the Bellevue, psych, the psych ER. Um, and during that time, I had a, a faculty affiliation with NYU School of Medicine. And when I left the Bellevue job, I still had the faculty affiliation. It was still important to me to have that you know, if nothing else in sort of in the Chiron, when you're being interviewed by CNN, it's nice if it can say assistant professor of psychiatry. And, and in terms of career suicide, the closest thing I got to career suicide was that I went on um, the Bill O'Reilly show. Uh, and you can he, end the sentence there, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sure, but the thing, here's what happened. He, he asked me something about drugs and I basically said that I thought that some drugs could be therapeutic. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I think that psilocybin or ayahuasca are potentially therapeutic. I didn't even say MDMA. I don't know why I picked those two. Um, but there was somebody very high up at Bellevue who happened to watch Fox News and watch Bill O'Reilly. And she was like, well, who, is this, who is this NYU person and what is she saying? And then shortly after that, uh, I lost my faculty affiliation and I became a free agent. I was no longer an assistant professor of psychiatry. That was really hard for me. I, I felt... Um, I felt sort of betrayed by some of the faculty there that, that uh, enabled me to be let go. Um, I was, mm. I was, I, I had sort of dreams that I would always be at NYU, do psychedelic research at NYU, or do MDMA research at NYU. So it was hard. It was hard for me. But what happened right after that was that I sold Moody Bitches to Penguin Press for seven figures, and all of a sudden. I, it just didn't matter as much if I had a faculty affiliation or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And so ever since then, I've been able to say whatever I want. I don't have any chairman or chairperson or, you know, board of directors. I don't have anybody telling me what I can or can't say or what I, you know, where I focus myself and put my energy into, except, you know, my, my uh, wrangler and spiritual bodyguard and husband, Jeremy Wolf. I absolutely, he's, you know, if anybody's going to tell me what to do or not to do or how to sound crazy or not, it's going to be him. Um, but so the career suicide became sort of a non-issue. You know, I had, uh, I did my residency. I, I worked for nine years at Bellevue. I've had a private practice for 28 years now. Uh, I've published five books. It's, I love that I can say what I want. I love that I uh, can speak my mind and speak from the heart. And um, it, my career is, is sort of firmly ensconced at this, at this point. I don't know what it would take to blow it up. Um, I don't know, somebody well, well, wanted, somebody wanted to cancel side, me. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, now, I now we're on the other side is that JFK thing of you know, uh, success has a thousand fathers and failures and orphan. And so like the psychedelic renaissance, right, is obviously, um, completely blossomed, has been validated, mainstreamed, Michael Pollan, all the things, you know, so so now everybody's piling into this space, but just as I had to, yeah. you know, and it's particularly to listeners who might have been like, oh yeah, I got into ayahuasca, you know, ages ago, 
back in that 2011 Nat Geo article, you know, or I heard about it on a Rogan podcast. You're like, you guys are infants, you know, as far as this, the history of this movement. And you've been, you've been in it and, and speaking, you know, speaking your truth and, and, and uh, dedications about it for a lot longer than it was, than it's just been trendy and, and sexy. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things that reminds me of, I mean, you know, one is a, I, I always sort of joke uh, either with Rick or about Rick, this idea that because we're playing the long game, we really need to like watch our blood pressure and our cholesterol, you know, it's going to take a long time. It's been going on for, you know, 30 some plus years. Um, but, you know, I just, I just came from the Horizons conference last weekend and uh, I, this thing has got a life of its own at this point. Obviously, it's got plenty of momentum. It doesn't matter what I do anymore. You know, I uh, a lot of seeds got planted a long time ago, and they they're bearing fruit everywhere. You know, I was in the the hallway at Horizons, and these the three people came up to me from a Montreal site. You know, and they want to do psilocybin research and end of life. And then I talked to three psychiatrists uh, from Long Island, and they're interested in MDMA schizophrenia and um, there's just, there's people everywhere doing the research, you know, like the ideas are out there. I mean, I'm not, I know you saw me kind of like sit back like, Hey, you know, you guys could do all the work now. I mean, the, the, the seeds were sown, everybody can reap, you know, the benefits now the word is out. It's, a, it's incredibly gratifying, but I also spent a lot of time at Horizons on the stage talking about, we have some problems and we need to weed out these problems. You know, we're all trying to grow something and, and unrestricted growth in medicine is called cancer. Uh, any good gardener knows that you really have to prune, you know, you have to prune and shape and train the plants to be the, the shape you want them to be and just complete unrestricted growth. You're not gonna get the most fruit. And sometimes when you prune a tree back, especially a fruit tree, you're supposed to prune those babies way back. They're ugly. You know, you've you've taken a lot of the beauty out, but what you've left are like the really strong ones that are going to uh, grow and with and bear fruit. So I feel like we're really in a pruning phase now, or we should be in a pruning phase now. You know, there there are issues. There are people who are misbehaving. Um, you know, and it, I mean, there's so I, I mean, I, it's not my job, obviously, to fix everything. And you know, I mean, like a dentist, I'm just trying to see where the cavities are. And like I said, at Horizons, you know, it's it's no fun going to the dentist. I mean, you do get, you know, nitrous or maybe you could get ketamine, it's, but it's painful. Uh, they got to really dig out all the stuff that's rotten and then fill it in with something, but it, then the tooth is stronger, you know, and um, uh, all metaphors aside, but we're definitely in, in a phase now where we need to clean up and uh, make sure that we are being ethical and acting with integrity. Um, and not sort of incorporating the the root of the buzzword, you know, the the patriarchal or um, capitalist sort of agenda Extract, on this, right? We don't want to be capitalism. extractive. You know, we're we are really so kind of hypnotized by some of these words and this idea. Like somebody was talking to me about, well, I don't know. I, I don't think I want to go into this field because I can't get ahead in that field. And I'm like, yeah, but you're in that field, you wanna be in that field. Like, why do you have to get ahead? You know, why does there have to be, she's like, she's looking for a job and somebody was saying to her, yeah, but is there any, is there any room to go, to move up? And like, I get that that's the way we think, but 
you don't have to move up. So you, you know, get a bunch of smart kids in the Ivy Leagues going to fucking Goldman Sachs and McKinsey. You know, yeah. just like what is the what is the fastest, slickest ladder to right. the top? And what's versus- right? And what's the next thing? And where's the top? And you know, like that great world party song, like where is this top you speak of? You know, there's there's no such thing. And it is this sort of, uh, it's you know, uh, there's this quote I love to say, but I'm blanking on it now. Oh, you uh, you can never get enough of something that almost works. You know, you're looking for that validation and that thing that's going to be meaningful to you, but you're like holding a cup with a hole in the bottom. You know, it's it's not really going to work. And so when I, uh, even though maybe I'm being hypocritical because I am also uh, among the venture capitalist people and I am investing in the space, I am emotionally invested in the sort of psychedelic business space, um, but we would love it. I know, and I'm not alone, I'll say we, uh, many of us would love it if it wasn't so patriarchal and capitalist and if it was more psychedelic, you know, which is all about, as you know, uh, group mind or, you know, connecting with nature, connecting with the cosmos, connecting with the self, you know, there's something very disconnected and and cancer. And um, I, I don't mean to say this in a bad way because it's not, I mean, you know, yang and yin, you know, we need them both. But there's something just like very, very yang about the way these corporations are working, where they're carving out the IP. Um, it's not communal. It's not united or unitive. You know, a unitive consciousness. That's what like the best thing about psychedelics is that when you feel that bliss of connection, you know, like everything is connected and it all makes sense. Or you know, love connects all of us. I mean, I don't know what you're, if you've had unitive experiences, if you're comfortable talking about them, but I want to add that unitive consciousness to the, 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 the psychedelic business world. I don't know if that's possible, well, but look, I'm going to make a plea. Let, let me play devil's advocate on that, right? Because within the, what, you know, whether you call it the underground or kind of the core psychedelic community, without a doubt, the ineffability of the psychedelic experience is the thing that has lit people up, the thing that has brought people to take risks and prioritize bringing this into the world. It's very, you know, purpose-based and mission-driven. And, you know, in some respects, you could say this is kind of a continuation of mystery schools from ever back. You know, you know, Rick mentions the Lucinian mysteries. There's obviously the Hebraic mystical tradition. There's all sorts, right? And that idea of like, oh, we are initiates into something ineffable, profound, beautiful, right? And we're proselytizing. We're doing our best to kind of bring it to others. And on the other hand, right, there, there's been pushback and i think it was a hopkins study maybe five six years ago you probably were tracking this one the ones about uh, you know increased ecological awareness you know all the kind of groovy pro-social qualities but then you know the methodology was somewhat questioned what was there any p hacking was that you know what, what, right. is that really true and then you kind of get the sydney gottlieb's you know back the, the, the mk ultra you know cia guys who on the one hand you know, he meditated and he lived off the grid and he had goats and had a little farm. And on the other hand, he was doing horrendous prison experiments and all kinds of psychological manipulation. And, you know, and then you've got the crypto tech bros, you know, who have had a handful of experiences. And in fact, it appears that that's actually, it's not eradicating ego and pr- prompting unitive experiences, or if right. it is, it's at a state level, not at a developmental level. And you're having almost inflamed narcissism, which was always one of the known issues in all of spiritual traditions, but now we're coming at it from a medical, psychological, experiential level. So the more the merrier. So what's your take on, you know, th- throw in Aztec mushroom sacrifices? You know, you're like, fuck, it's like, right. like, 
Kicking It to the Grateful Dead, you know, in Marin in 1975 was super great. Right. And they're set in the right. culture and milieu. But, um, all but then they, you also have like LSD with the Manson murders. So like, yeah. how can it be all these things? And, um, you know, like like anything in life, you know, it's uh, it's complicated and it's not black and white and it's not either or it's both. Um, I, you know, the joke that that uh, I've made and I know Michael Pollan makes it's a, it's an easy joke to make is like, you know, these are supposed to be medicines that dissolve ego. Why is there so much ego in this space? And, you know, it comes back to this, like people are going to people like there's everybody. Uh, the <laughs> This this field um, attracts strong personalities uh, who've got quirky ideas and they're tilting at windmills. I think it. I think just because of psychedelics um, in and of themselves that are they're so intense and they are like this catalysts, um, it's going to bring in some particular types of people. So there there are a lot of narcissists in this space there, and there are a lot of these sort of yang personalities. You know, I think of it's not has nothing to do with men or women. Uh, a lot of the women I've met in this space are. Um, you know, I, I was at I was at Esalen in a hot tub full of women in this space a few years ago before COVID. And we all admitted to each other, it was like seven women, and we all admitted to each other that as children, we had not identified as men, we had identified as tomboys. You know, there was a space for us where we were like bossy girls and tough girls. Um, but we were girls, you know, none of us had gotten, you know, sex change reassignment surgery or anything like that. But this, but this idea of a tomboy to me is sort of incorporating the yang in, into the yin. And it doesn't matter what gender you are. And the, and the yang is this sort of, you know, go out there and get it and then come back and see if it was the thing you thought it was. And, and the yin is like, let's learn about what the thing is and, and be open to it when it comes to us. You know, it's just like very, very different kind of energy. And, and can you play um, that game without getting steamrolled by the yang, right? Like, 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 yeah, you know, that, that, that's the question of just do those quieter voices, does that more longer game, um, sort of more organic thing, you know, basically it's sort of permaculture versus clear cutting. Yeah. And, and how, how do you have the how do you have the longer slower game have the chance to thrive in the face of I think I just feel like that because of the culture we're living in you know you can't you can't take the people out of the culture and the culture in in America or certainly you know in the New York City gatherings that we went to or the Miami gatherings it is like a lot of uh yang capitalist driven um and and they're the model you know uh, something I heard a bunch at Horizons was like, well, these guys are pharma companies. What do you expect from pharma companies? And you're talking to a psychiatrist, like what I expect from pharma companies, what, you know, what I've seen since I've been uh, an undergrad, you know, studying prescription medicines and drugs of abuse, and obviously in med school, psych residency, I have seen pharma com companies behave unconscionably, so evil, so bad, like, surprising me over and over again by the their bullshit games and the bottom line and what they would do to get that so if these psychedelic companies are oh they're just pharma companies like you know that's the perfect sort of excuse it's like boys will be boys you know it's just like that's how that's how pharma companies act it's true it is how pharma companies act but you know we in the psychedelic community who care about or say we care about 
the environment, the indigenous population, marginalized societies. You know, we want everybody included. We want diversity and inclusion and, and you know, group and hugging. Uh, but it's so sort of yin and diffuse what we want versus uh, the yang capitalist kind of greed machine where it's normalized. That's how they do it. This, you know, look, this is how you do. You get patents and you, you know, defend your patents. And, um, you know, I get up on, this... on the head for being hopelessly naive for suggesting there might be a different way. Like, oh, you just yeah. don't understand the way the world works, honey. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, I would rather be hopelessly naive and not understand and keep insisting about how people should act than, you know, be steamrolled and just sort of <laughs> accept, uh, you know, this is bigger than me and I can't fight it. You know, I don't, I don't mind tilting at windmills. You know, I have, I have nothing better to do. Um, and also, you know, like Rick, who sort of wanted to change things from the inside out, I decided in, instead of pretending that this, you know, whole sphere doesn't exist, you know, corporate like, I mean, there's so many people who are just don't want anything to do with the corporations. They're furious. They're throwing up their hands. Um, I would rather get involved, know who the players are, steer my friends to the people that I think are more ethical. You know, I've chosen to throw my lot in with a couple different uh, people and companies. You know, I'm medical. I'm, I'm advising for a VC company called Palo Santo. Um, they were sort of vetted for me by Double Blind, which is a psychedelic um, magazine that I like on the West Coast. And um, I, you know, I've met a lot of VC people and the guys at Palo Santo, I really feel like uh, get it and they care and they're ethical and they're good people. And I've decided um, to try to help them and maybe steer some of my friends who are developing co companies to come to Palo Santo's, you know, um, there's a bunch of VCs in this space. Some of them are are more collaborative. Others are more sort of cutthroat. Um, mm -hmm. and, and and they've already adopted and appropriated everything you just said about indigenous and inner cities and diversity and equity and all of the kind of things and the givebacks. And, and some are sincere. And then a whole the lot of others. Yeah. It's lip service. And you look at their business models or their pitch decks and you're like, guys, how riddle me this. Like, how are you going to take a like mescaline to market? And you know that 100 million bucks in a decade, and serve inner cities and give back to all the indigenous populations that might have ever had any affiliation with that molecule in any shape or form, and give 10x returns to your you know A round investors. You're like that right. doesn't like pick a few, but you don't get you cannot do yeah. all of them. It is it is this question of whether people are really walking their talk or not, and I wonder who's going to keep an eye on, you know, who says they're doing and what they are really doing. I mean, um, some, you know, I get calls a lot from people who, who want me to sort of uh, work with them. And I think part of it is just like, you know, they need a woman on their website. I'm a woman, I have an MD, I'm not a woman of color. I don't have any indigenous background. I mean, I'm a Jew, you could make a case that, you know, we've been oppressed at some point, but clearly these days we're not really you know, we are, if anything, probably in a more privileged position. So, but anyway, my point is uh, I get asked a lot to, you know, be on this company or that. And sometimes, yeah, I'll get on the phone with like the CEOs and they're saying all the right things, you know? And I realize it's just like, you know, their assistant outlined good chemistry for them. And they're just ticking off the boxes of things that are important to me that I've written about. I mean, I'm afraid that that's kind of what it is, you know? And I got, I sort of got charmed at first. And then I was like, there's something weird about the order that he mentioned all these things. And I'm like, yeah, 
okay, that makes more sense now. But there, but there are some companies who are saying that they're giving back who are, um, I hope that they're saying, well, you know, that they're doing what they say they're going to do. Um, there's no end to, to the imbalance of sort of like the people who really need this versus the people who are getting it or are going to get it. But it's the same thing in psychiatry, you know, the, I mean, Moody Bitch is all, is all about how women are like overdiagnosed, overpathologized, overmedicated. And yet you could totally flip it around and make a case that there's just as many people who are really psychiatrically ill, who have no access to psychiatrists, where there's too much stigma, they're not on meds, they're not properly diagnosed, they're sick and they're harming others, you know, while mm. they're sick. So um, like I said, it's, it's, it's often, you know, both things and not one or the other. I mean, yeah. everything, if you look big enough is, you know, you think it's white and it's black. It's, uh, well, I mean, and anybody I think, who's trying to do big, big scale philanthropy, you know, you start out with prisons or you start out with diet, you start out with whatever, you know, and people almost always end up back to, fuck, you got to go back to education for the kids. You know, like you're sort of like broken humans are broken, hurt people, hurt people. And how do we get back to fix that? You know, it yeah. almost always regresses back to like, you know, Montessori school for everyone. No, um, it's true. Like I used to at Bellevue, the joke was, so was the patient need like a childhood transplant? Is that what we're talking about here? Because like yeah. everybody that came into Bellevue psyche are, I actually got to a point where I said, I don't need to hear the heart wrenching backstory anymore. I'm just going to accept that every single person that walks through these doors has had a terrible childhood. They have been sexually abused, physically abused, neglected. It's a given, you know? So I agree that you do, that is probably the best place to break the cycle is like with, with super early childhood intervention, you know, like from doula on for like the first two, three, maybe five years. I mean, it's good to front load things and then you don't have to work so hard later. You know, we, a lot of us uh, who had kids, you know, in the nineties or two thousands, we did like attachment parenting, you know, and that's. Um, maybe they don't still call it attachment parenting, but it is this idea that if you put in a lot of time in the first few years, you're not going to have to put in so much time after, you know? Um, and that was my experience. Hmm. Um, well, 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 listen, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to kind of peel back the layer because this was a great kind of just update on the state of the union, the state of the, the world, the field of, you know, psychedelic ther therapy and its intersection with psychiatry. And my sense is, is that there's a there's a shared thread. There's a thread we share um, from your books, um, you know, moody bitches into into good chemistry in particular, where you're sort of saying, hey, underneath the hood of the psychological experience are, you know, the endocrine, hormonal, neurochemical substrates, and and you spend quite a bit of time unpacking the serotonergic system, which is obviously where Prozac uh, intercedes, as well as many of the tryptamine class psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin and MDMA as well as the endocannabinoid system, um, and then and the sort of parasympathetic system in our bodies, including, I'm imagining, kind of vagal nerve and, and those sort of things. So, um, and, and obviously I just wrote quite a bit about, this, dedicated the entire middle section of my book to those things, right? Like, hey, yeah. even if, you know, let's assume that the psychedelic renaissance as it's getting press is already captured by big pharma and by the, you know, the market ratchets, but that's not the whole story. Right, there's still an underground. There's still gonna, there's both sacramental use, underground use, all of these things. And what's as interesting as anything else is that psychedelics gives us really good research opportunities. You know, you get to put somebody in a specific compound in an fMRI machine, or hooked up to a skull cap, or whatever it would be, so we can precipitate known states and track them. And now we're under the hood to the knobs and levers of our bodies and brains. 
So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on it. And many of our kind of listeners will probably appreciate just walking through some of these things. So let's, let's start where you were talking. So why is it and how is it that the serotonin system, right, can both do something like kind of numb you out and just clip all your peaks and valleys with something like a Prozac and SSRI? Um, and on the other hand, can you can shoot the moon on something like an LSD or kind of hit that happy middle band with something like MDMA? What, what do you, how do you tease apart those yeah. different mechanisms of action? Because they seem so wildly different and yet all you know, important for us to make sense of. Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, it's incredibly complicated. And if we could understand it, it wouldn't be incredibly complicated. The brain, the more we look, the more we figure out that we don't know. And, you know, when I, back when I was in med school, we only had like three serotonin receptors, you know, it's like, we keep finding more and more and subdividing them. Um, the, you know, the short answer with why Prozac is different from MDMA or, or, or the classical psychedelics is that, is that um, the SSRIs, um, even though the, you know, the S either stands for specific or selective, depending on what you paid attention to back in the 90s, but it's a selective or specific serotonergic, which is already non-specific <laughs> reuptake inhibitor. It just blocks the recycling. It doesn't do anything else. So it is sort of a non-specific increase uh, for presynaptic serotonin, whereas uh the way the LSD, the, the way LSD gloms on to the 5-HT2A receptor in particular, it doesn't just get onto this very specific receptor, but the receptor kind of cups it in there and it really holds on for a while. Then uh, psilocybin hits that receptor, it doesn't hold on for as long. But, but the serotonin from, from Prozac is just nonspecific. It doesn't just go to the 5-HT2A. It's going to go to all the other serotonergic receptors as well. So um, but there was a time when I first understood the way that MDMA worked, you know, where it was a little confusing, like, why is this illegal? And then why is, why is Prozac legal? You know, they're sort of doing the same thing, but they don't completely do the same thing. And the bottom line is the first time somebody takes a Prozac, they don't uh, feel really good and wonder if maybe they can <clears throat> do this again sometime soon. It's just, it's not that immediate, you know, and that's one of the ways uh, at this point, we all sort of you know, some things are drugs, some things are medicines. We call, we call what other people would say are drugs, you know, those are plant medicines. And then, you know, what most people say are prescription medicines, you can also call drugs. And it's like, what's the difference? And one of the ways that I sort of think of the difference is um, drugs act immediately and uh, for, you know, either four hours or eight hours or 12 hours and then it's over, you know, but like the medicines, you take them every day and after a while they sort of build up and start making these changes. So that's my, the biggest my favorite, difference. My favorite neologism was hearing some some uh, podcast bros down in Tulum talking about party medicines. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting new category. Nice, right. <laughs> so, but one of the, you know, when I, in, in good chemistry, what I was trying to get at is this idea that when you're in the parasympathetic, when you're feeling held and cared for and loved and attended to, um, that is a very particular pharmacological cocktail, mm -hmm. you know? And I would say it's different for everybody. Um, but it's also very different from being in fight or flight. And everybody knows what fight or flight feels like. And also everybody's heard about fight or flight for, you know, I was taught fight or flight like a dozen times from middle school to medical school. It was always uh, explained, you know, the rapid heart rate and the sweaty hands and all this stuff. And it was explained like, this is, a, this is how our species survives. You know, we either fight or we run away. And the, what good chemistry was about is like, that's 
bullshit. You know, that might happen 5% of your life if you're unlucky. But the truth is where you're supposed to spend most of your time and where you really thrive is when you're not in fight or flight. You know, you, your social skills suck in fight or flight. And if you don't have good social skills, no one's going to help you. You know, they're not going to share the, the kill with you and feed you. They're not going to help you build your lean to, you're not going to survive, you know, back in the Savannah, if people didn't like you or you didn't have good social skills, you could easily die. And so being in the opposite of fight or flight means that your social skills are better. You can learn, you can integrate. It's the only time where you can rest, digest, and your body can repair itself and you can repair your social relationships. So good chemistry was all about what is this parasympathetic? What's the chemistry of parasympathetic? And it's not just one thing, right? It's everybody's kind of proprietary blend of However, oxytocin is going to make you feel good, right? Oxytocin may or may not feel good on its own, but what we do know is that it enables these cascades of feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters, like endorphins, like endocannabinoids, right? I've got, um, I spent a lot of time on research for good chemistry, and if you go to drholland.com and you click on good chemistry, there's like 40 pages of notes of um, scientific articles, book chapters, you know, to sort of support what I'm talking about. Um, I found a bunch of articles on how, on how oxytocin works through the endocannabinoid system, how oxytocin works through the endorphin system, um, how it also increases serotonin, dopamine. So, so it's also sort of- Lethylamine, it's like all the good stuff, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, it's not really one thing, um, you know, but if you look at a baby who's nursing, and and how like relaxed and you know slack jawed it looked you might say that baby looks very opiated you know and it's true that there is a real increase of just sucking releases endorphins mm -hmm. um and if it didn't babies would die right if sucking didn't feel good you're not going to make it if mm -hmm. eating didn't feel good like those are just very basic things that they have to wire the brain a certain way and there's actually a lot of the endocannabinoid system that's involved with developing the musculature for sucking. So it's all it's all kind of mm -hmm. recursive, you know, that when I started looking at this stuff, I loved it. And the other thing that I loved is I discovered that these receptors mate, they form dimers, um, a receptor complex, a serotonin, like a 5-HT2A receptor, right? Which you could think of as a psychedelic receptor. Mm -hmm. When it gets stimulated enough, it makes a receptor pair with the oxytocin receptor. So now so, is, is oxytocin a signaling molecule in that whole shebang or so, is it just yeah, rising? Because it's so like, like Benson's work, right? On nitric oxide, right? He, his, his whole point of blood-brain barrier and the whole notion of what nitric oxide does in that is, is oxytocin in a similar category to that or is it kind of distinct and doing a sort of third differential? Well, so oxytocin is two very main things. Uh, again, it's, is it one, is it the other? No, it's both and probably more. So it is a hormone that works throughout the body, right? Like a, a hormone uh, goes into the bloodstream, works in a different part, right? And a neurotransmitter just works like right next door within the brain. So oxytocin functions as both a neurotransmitter and a hormone. So it is, you know, it's like everywhere you wanna be, especially if you're uh, a woman, like it's, it will allow you to nurse and to bond with your baby. It will allow you to push a baby out of your uterus, right? That's totally a high oxytocin state. Uh, it's, right, you know, like pitocin, like right? pitocin, exactly. Like if you want to induce labor, you give oxytocin. Um, it is very much involved with nursing. It's also very much involved with orgasm. One of the things I wrote about in Moody Bitches is like, you know, you may think that you have a casual hookup, 
But if you are a woman and you have had an orgasm with somebody, you are going to have a, a like a squirt of oxytocin in your brain that's going to make you sort of more open and trusting and bonding with this person who just helped to bring you to this somewhat difficult to achieve state. Um, men also have an increase in oxytocin after orgasm. And one of the things I posited in Moody Bitches when I was writing about porn is, um, are we bonding with our laptops a little bit right after we climaxed, you know? Because <laughs> I if love you have a little Apple oxytocin products. and you, yeah. right, exactly. So um, I don't know for sure. Uh, that was just sort of a, a, not a rhetorical question, but I, I am, I did write quite a bit about porn and uh, shaving pubic hair and all sorts of things in Moody Bitches. I, you know, I had things to say about, about women and society. And I, just as a physician, like, please don't uh, um, irreversibly remove your pubic hair. You may want it later because there's, there's like a lot of people who are getting laser hair removal. Um, well, but there was this interesting we, article in the New York Times, right? I think there was, I feel like it was maybe an op-ed, but it was, it was some professor who was basically discussing first wave, second wave, third wave feminism and that, and basically just asking, I suppose it was kind of Gen Z, you know, college women, like, hey, are, are you kind of happy with how this is all played out? The whole white right, no slut shaming, more, you know, more choices and more everything is just better. And they were sort of like, no, like, we don't like this. We've been sort of sold the bill of goods. And it was almost kind of like a sort of erosion of that just sort of um, structuralist sex positivity. Because there was a sense oh. of an erosion. It sounds like you're speaking to maybe some of the deep structural things that might be sort of more perennially true than just sort of a girl power, girl boss kind of take on all that. Yeah. Well, you know, there are some things I think, I have a 21-year-old daughter, and there are some things that I'm like, you're so lucky, you're growing up now, it was so much worse when we were, you know, like in some ways, I think that, that their generation has got things uh, better and easier. Um, you know, it, I would say with body positivity, they really have. Like, you know, I definitely grew up in a time where you wanted like big boobs and a small butt, and that's just not my lineage, you know? And there was there was not a lot of like, you know, curvy, thick is good. Like that did that was not my childhood. Um, but you know, luckily for my daughter, I think there's just a lot, a lot less body shaming and a lot less slut shaming, and that's great. But this, the bottom line is that we are really built for connection and a lot of the hookup sex is about you know having not much intimacy and not much connection and being okay with that and it just it honestly just kind of goes uh, against our wiring um and then the other thing I wrote about in Moody Bitches is, is this um being sort of over medicated you know being on antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, sleeping pills, all the things that women are on but also being on birth control pills like yeah. that's a very uh non-fluid sort of stable static non-fluctuating way for a woman to be and we really are naturally uh fluid and dynamic and we feel different ways at different times of the month and it serves us in different ways and so if, if you're on the pill non-stop and you're on antidepressants non-stop you're just you're not having any kind of that flow you know and you get a little stuck and also there's really encourage i don't want to say encouraging there's evidence that suggests that this combination of antidepressants and birth control pills makes it so that you don't really uh, 
care if you're coupled or not. You're not going to pursue someone. You're not going to fall in love. You know, one of the things you need to fall in love is you have to be a little bit obsessive, a little bit <laughs> delusional. And if yeah. you're if you're on a medicine to prevent OCD, you're not going to get that obsessive. I'm really into this person. I'm thinking about them all the time. You know, you're going to miss that. And then there's this whole issue whether birth control really interferes with pheromone um, mm -hmm. detection and processing, which I know is a little bit woo woo and and out of bounds for some people. But I. I absolutely believe in the power of pheromones and the power of smell um, to well, help with mating. That? That's not to weird, help with mating. Well, <clears throat> whether the pill really interferes and how and whether that matters, I think it's still a little bit up for grabs because it hasn't been like a highly replicated study. And is, but, is that the one where I mean, there, like look, women on the pill will choose a, a basically a sort of better partner, domestic housemate, and then when they go off the pill, their hormonal reset and they sort of crave testosterone strong jaw exactly right so guy. you you end up with somebody so the idea with um the from what i understand of pheromones but the reason why i say woo is that there's some people who feel like humans don't have pheromones this is all bullshit like there are people who are just like this doesn't exist i'm not one of those people um the 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 pheromone detection, from what I understand, is based on the sort of same compatibility issues when you give a kidney to somebody. Like it's called the MHA compatibility. And the idea is if I'm immune to five things and my lover is immune to five things, maybe our kids will be immune to 10 things. And won't that be great? But if 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 we're immune to the same five things, we just we don't, we're not creating vigorous hybrids. Mm -hmm. So you have this detection system so that you can find people who are a little different from you, enough different from you that your kids are gonna have more protection. Um, and so what happens with the pill is that you end up picking people who are too similar, mm -hmm. who are more like your brother than like an other. That's one issue. Then this other issue of like testosterone, chiseled chin, low voice, maybe more likely to cheat on you. Those guys, uh, you know, they, they have a, a name tag of CAD instead of dad, right? The, the guys who are more <laughs> likely to be a dad aren't gonna screw around Maybe they're not as testosterone-y. Maybe they're a little lower testosterone. That's why they're going to stay and help you raise the kids, right? Mm -hmm. So you're better off picking a dad when you want to have a kid. And you're better off picking a cad if you just need a sperm donor or just sex and you don't really want him to stick around and raise the kids. So, but the birth control pills actually make you more likely to pick a dad than a cad. Maybe that's not bad. I'm rhyming. Yeah, that's a little Dr. <laughs> Sexy Seuss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is it bad to pick a cad or a dad? You've been had. Um, I, That's right. Yeah. I think I think that a lot of women in their twenties are really attracted to these sort of bad boys who who don't give them what they want. Um, you know, and you're you never get enough of something that all almost works. So you you keep going back, and they keep sort of on. Uh, it's not a satisfying partnership. And a lot of times, what happens with a woman when she starts to get into 30, 31, 32, there is a little bit of hijacking that happens, you know, and the estrogen really starts convincing your brain that the priority is not a sexy guy, but somebody who's going to help you raise kids. If that's, you know, where you're at and that's what you want. Just, I mean, just relationally, the number of friends we've known who have gone through their twenties in some kind of really powerful, meaningful, potential soulmate connection, you know, with all the fireworks and the drama fracture. And then it's almost like musical chairs timer, like the next semi likely candidate come that window, bam, and, and yeah. it's marriage that they hope will paper over any of the lack of all the other stuff. And then kids in two, you know, kids within 24 months, and you're just like, wow, this is, this is just nakedly predictable. 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's nature, you know, I mean, biology, look, I'm very biologically oriented. I mean, I was, I was hypnotized by, you know, brainwashed for four years of pen, biological basis of behavior. So I, it is all biology world for me. I mean, I, I have a lens you, that I look at things as, you know, we are social primates, how do primates act? What is the dominance hierarchy in, and what is the social structure in other primate societies? Because we are a primate society. Um, that's one, that's one thing. And then I also look at like, you know, how are the hormones driving behavior? But one of the interviews I did with Moody Bitch, she, she reminded me of something really important that I kind of forgot. She's like, you know, we all got into this habit of saying this hormone causes this behavior, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's really not that simple. It's not like if I inject a woman with testosterone, she's going to get horny, although she might, but she's not going to get horny in a vacuum. The thing that will actually give her her own testosterone levels is if some hot guy comes around, she likes the way he looks and he smells, you know? that gives you your own testosterone and then you're horny. So sometimes you need like a stimulus or a releaser to get those hormone levels up. It's not like I have increased testosterone, therefore I'm horny. It more like is like I saw a guy who made me horny and now I have increased testosterone levels. Yeah. Well, actually that, that, because as you were talking, I was thinking of Addy, the, the female Viagra pill that kind of crashed and burned, you know, to much, much hype and chagrin. And that sort of the upshot, at least of the press coverage was women aren't that simple. Right. And you're seeking these kind of mechanistic. In fact, who was the fellow? There's a fellow who's the OB-GYN. He was at Harvard. He's based in Aspen, who was on that study. I can dig out his name again, but we were at a conference together. He's like, yeah, basically, you know, men need a place and women need a reason kind of thing. And but but now let's go back to your biomechanics, you know, biomechanics. Right. If you were to let's assume there is no one stop shop, single pill for a woman's arousal, meaning, et cetera. But if you were to lightly juice their testosterone levels, if you were to give them low dose, like micro dose ED drugs, so you have <clears throat> boosted nitric oxide and potential vasodilation and engorgement, if you were to yes. kind of create some of those things, and then you put them in a set and setting, aren't the, would that not be potentially helpful? It would be helpful. And the other thing that may be helpful is just a smidge of 2CB. You know, there is some psychedelics that are more likely to have you sort of feeling sensual and liking the the feel of things. You know, people had this idea that MDMA was like a great drug for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in reality, it's, it's, it's a great drug for bonding and connecting and having some emotional intimacy. But it, there are some hydraulic issues where it's not really a great, you know, pro-sexual drug. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I sometimes so, so I think about, about then, how to design sure. a pro-sexual right. drug. Well, I, there are, there are definitely some companies that are really looking, um, I mean, I've looked at so many decks, Jamie, I can't tell you all these companies and their decks of what, you know, what they're, what they're proposing. Um, there are several companies I will tell you, and I'm not going to name any names, um, who are looking at uh, 2CB for women and sexuality. And I think that there probably is something there. I mean, I, I don't think there are too many other psychedelics that make you sort of particularly interested or, or open to sex, but 2CB um, uh, in my experience does and other other people's experiences does. I mean, Sasha Shulgin sort of said that 2CB was was the, you know, the sexiest or the most sort of sensual of the, of the um, phenylethylamines he had, he had looked at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, what was it? I can't remember what the drug was called that they came out with for women, but there were, there were a lot of problems with it. One of the problems uh, with it was Addy, that you couldn't, Addy. Addy. Yeah. you couldn't, you couldn't have alcohol with it. 
-hmm. So unfortunately, I think a lot of women are used to having a drink or two before they're with somebody because it sort of takes away their inhibitions. They feel a little cloudy or separated from themselves and they can, you know, do crazy things they wouldn't typically do. So I think that was a real deal breaker for a lot of people. Um, it wasn't a well-tolerated medicine and I don't think it worked particularly well. I never prescribed it for anybody. Nobody ever asked me for it. I did prescribe testosterone every once in a while um, to a patient who wanted, but like very low dose. And I, you know, one of the things I would say about testosterone for my patients um, is, you know, they were like, what are the side effects? And I'm like, well, it can make you a little more hairy. It can make you a little more pimply. It can make you a little more um, cheating on your partnery. So, you know, the thing people sort of forget about testosterone or they don't tell you is that it really is a hormone of novelty. You know, you're not next, you're not necessarily going to be romantically inclined to the, to the prince who's charmingly slumped at your side. You may be looking at some other prince charming or knight in shining armor that you think could actually provide you with a, a more vibrant, vibrant, uh, vigorous hybrid, you know, because it really, even though you don't, you don't want a baby, your body is trying to mate with the best genes. You know, yeah. somebody that you think is sexy or whatever, it's, it really comes down to your body is like, oh, those genes would maybe work with our genes, you know? And it's not conscious, obviously. I, hi, I'm attracted to your genetic material. Come with me, you know? But um, so anyway, testosterone for women, it can help, it can help them uh, be more interested and have more libido. And also estrogen can help you be more receptive but it's all like a little bit of a balance you know it's tricky right because different people have different things that turn them on you know you can you can be very internal and you have visualizations or stories that make you excited but you're with somebody who wants you to talk or they want to talk you know what do you do with that um or you could be aroused by some things and they're aroused by other things it's uh it's incredibly tricky especially uh because novelty is so reliably um, something that will bring about libido in men and women. What do we do with these long-term relationships? We're with the same person for 20 years, 30 years. Like, you know, as uh, you probably know, and I certainly know, I mean, Jeremy and I are, are considering to, you know, trying to write about this is like, how do you, how do you keep the love alive? And, you know, one way that it actually, uh, one thing that can reliably increase testosterone is competition, hmm. arguing, fighting, trying to get the last word in, you know, uh, there's some dishes, the Lucy, the Lucille and Ricky Ricardo <laughs> right. thing. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, this idea of like makeup sex that after you separate and you have a big fight and then you get together and it feels better. And like there, there are all kinds of ways to change the pharmacology so that you're aroused to somebody. And the truth mm -hmm. is, and I wrote about this a lot in Moody Bitches, where you are in your cycle has a lot to do with whether you're going to be very receptive yeah. to sex or not and you know god help you if you're dealing with somebody perimenopausal or postmenopausal because where they are in their cycle is anybody's guess so it's mm -hmm. super complicated um i am i am uh, um, i will happily try out any medicines that are uh, purported to be uh pro-libidinous and pro-sexual well what about uh, I have what about ghb because that that was available at nutrition yeah. stores and that kind of stuff and then it's now so, just scheduled narcolepsy drug there's a lot of things that work better for men than women is what I will tell you. Uh, GHB, uh, gamma hydroxybutyrate, but the GHB also stands for good hard boner. Uh, it usually really helps with erections, but makes it a little harder to climax. Hmm. So 
anything that makes it a little harder to climax is just not going to be as good for women as for men, right? Men often want to last longer. I don't know too many women who want to last longer. So there are a lot of things that you may think are prosexual or, and that may like, be just make it stop. <laughs> men, not women, right? Um, it's funny anyway, enough, I've, I've heard the strongest endorsements of GHB from, from women. women? Yeah, yeah, who say it, it unlocks something more primal, more you know, dis- yeah. disinhibited and sensually attuned. Right. So this, so the disinhibition is a really big deal. Um, taking the brakes off. It's not just that you need gas; you need no brakes. And I would say, you know, a lot of men when they think about like what's a good drug for a woman, they they're thinking gas, like making her more horny. But it's true that a big part of it is just taking off the disinhibition. This is why people like ambient sex, oh, right? No way. Or are you serious? Ambient sex? Or have you never heard of ambient sex? Jamie, <laughs> where have you been? I know, I've been living so ambient really disinhibits you tremendously. So some people will take ambient and have sex. And mm. they may not remember the sex they had. So you know, it's you really need mm. to make sure there's consent and you're with somebody you yeah. trust because you really may not have full recollection for the event. Ambient kind of turns your brain into Teflon a little bit. Um and then it doesn't, some have women, a, doesn't have a pharmacological correlate to iboga. Is that some weird molecular thing? I don't know about any correlation between Ambien and, and ibogaine or iboga, but I'm certainly curious about that. And feel, that is news like to Hamilton. me. I feel like send Hamilton. me the article. Yeah, I feel like it was in one of like it was either a Hamilton. Have, or have Hamilton or a send me the article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just like, whoa, that is batshit. So, so, um, so. Okay, so ambient or just alcohol, right? A lot of women, you know, they'll get drunk and they're more likely to have sex. And they're also, don't forget, more likely to be like, oh, I don't remember I was drunk, you know, because there is this, as much as we're talking free love or whatever, there's still some stigma. There's still some shame. A lot of people have shame about sex, about climaxing. Like maybe you can have sex, but you couldn't possibly let someone see your orgasm face or whatever. I mean, it's 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 much more complicated for women pharmacologically, psychologically, there's more shame around sex for women than men. Absolutely. Shame is a, you know, big cock blocker, I might say. So um, this idea that, that GHB sort of gets them, you know, a little bit outside of themselves and a little bit looser, a little bit disinhibited, then yes, it's probably going to help some women feel more interested in sex or, you know, be more, uh, be more able to climax. Because I mean, your question about how do you, how do you, you know, perpetuate positive feelings, polarization, <clears throat> lust, attraction, that kind of thing, and longer-term relationships after evolution's had its fun with us. <laughs> it doesn't really care, yeah. right? So we, that was actually the study that we published in the book I just wrote, Recapture the Rapture, right? Which was 10 couples for 12 weeks against six metrics, so like two for peak state. So we did the MEQ 30 and we did a flow scale inventory. So sort of intermittent flow during your day, but also actual mystical states. Um, trauma, we did the PCL5, so self-administered and you know, Ura ring based HRV. So, you know, at a physiological level, are you defragging? And then also at a historic macro trauma level, are you, are you processing? And then relationally, it was the iOS intimacy of self and other, you know, how close intimacy are we feeling? And then that, the Pana scale and the results were, were meaningful and, and women quite often compared to the men often actually had, you know, understandably given our social constructs, you know, like had more initial trauma, but more change. They had higher mystical experiences if they had them, you know, once you kind of weeded out the non-responders, those kind of things. And, and the results were, you know, really comparable to even a little bit stronger than some of the MAPS, you know, psychedelic therapy results. So you're like, oh, and, and, and the reason we kind of came into that was a conversation I had with Rick at the Battery Club way back, you know, like three or four years ago. It was like, yeah, the closest thing we've seen in the MDMA 
PTSD work, the closest analog neurophysiologically was post-orgasm. So then we kind of went to Nicole Prousey's work. And I know you've been written, you've been writing on porn. Nicole's done some, you know, some quite a bit of work and they, they might not quite line up, but like, you know, she was, she's been studying orgasm for women as prescription pharmaceutical for anxiety, insomnia, pain, you know, all of those kinds right. of things. Back in the day, that was a real treatment. That was a real treatment for women's malaise, you know, and <laughs> I mean, they called it hysteria or something else, but um, I think it helps sometimes. I mean, you know, I, uh, I have a patient who is extremely tightly wound and miserable and can barely take a big breath. And she's in her forties and she's never climaxed. And I really feel like that's mm -hmm. potentially a big part of, of her uh presentation and her issues but it is true you know post orgasmic is when the oxytocin comes up and mdma we know um enhances oxytocin levels and functionality i mean that that is sort of an early study that we that i i hang my hat on and and remember that you know mdma reliably increases oxytocin and it for most people reliably induces a state where you are uh, more willing to bond and trust and connect and be intimate, you know, and that's a lot of the oxytocin. But then, you know, obviously it's a methamphetamine at heart. So you still have that increased dopamine where you want to sort of talk and connect and figure things out. And because of that increased dopamine, um, you have really good attention and concentration and, and sort of impulse control. And you can, uh, the serotonin allows you to sort of have this sense of satiety and calm so that you feel sort of strong enough and able enough to really look at the at the trauma and dig down you know i the thing i say about mdma is i couldn't i couldn't design a better a better medicine to facilitate trauma processing and and psychotherapy because not only are you awake and alert and you remember what you're talking about and you're looking at the where you got hurt in the past but all that oxytocin makes you really trust the person who's doing this work with you, which means that when you get together in the next day and the next week and the next month, you still have that like uh, therapeutic alliance. Like this person's helping me. I'm not gonna work against them. We're gonna work together. That's huge. You know, that's one of the big predictors of whether therapy, just regular psychotherapy has a good outcome or not is what's the therapeutic alliance and how strong is it? Um, and sometimes I think about marriage as a therapeutic alliance. It really your partner if they've known you for 20 30 years they uh this is not my quote but they have the blueprint they have the blueprint for your growth like i have the blueprint for jeremy's growth he has the blueprint for my growth you know why can't you be more like me it's you know he's not like me he's like him but if he tries a little this way to be a little more like him like me and i try a little bit to meet him in the middle like we both end up growing and having more of a repertoire of behaviors mm -hmm. so in some ways you know you're your relationship partner or lover um, ends up, you know, being your therapist and, 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 and how close you are and how much you trust them is, is sort of uh, what the therapeutic alliance is about and whether your relationship is going to, you know, go well or not. Um, yeah, I mean, you could for sure hotwire evolution, right? I mean, either it leads us into the ditch, you know, with seven year itches and, and, and affairs and all these kind of things on the sort of the novelty push for robust gene pool you know or you're like oh yes. whoa all those knobs and levers we can reclaim and we can use them to you know expand non-ordinary state experiences profound cathartic healing experiences which is you know aka equals novelty and True. is a little bit like learning to juggle chainsaws while doing the tango so it takes some time and practice so you can't just swap out your long-term partner for some 
hookup, you know, at last call, right? So you're yeah. kind of doubling down on that therapeutic blueprint, like it's ours to do together. And we're going to places we've never gone before. So I'm no longer looking over my shoulder, looking to swap you out for something new and shiny, you know, because yeah. like we are, we are explorers together, which feels like, you know, and, and you also, you know, the inevitable byproduct of this is quite often kids and a family unit. So you're sort of like, and so any, any, any gold we find is going into the family kitty. Right. Tightening the parental bond is doing all kinds of things. It, it, and, it feels like that's a. You know, we know that at, at least fathers of young babies, their testosterone goes down so that they are more likely to want to sort of, you know, they've got more, um, sorry, I have a blank on the vasopressin, right? The vasopressin goes up, the testosterone goes down. This is all very simplistic, of course, but it's just this idea that there are biological uh, adjustments that get made to a new father's chemistry so that he is more likely to want to stay, protect the baby and less likely to want to go out and screw around. But that seven year itch is totally when like, baby doesn't need protecting anymore, you know? And uh, maybe, you know, maybe the, the genetic imperative that I spread my seed is, is what should take over. Um, I, you know, we definitely had a seven year itch thing in our relationship, no no question. And I think a lot like of people- Like right around on time? Like not exactly on time, not exactly on time, but you know, close enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then the question is, then what, you know, what, what happens after that? Because there's, there are going to be breaks, you know, there are going to be breaches and boundary violations and transgressions. And then the question is, do you, do you stay and try to fix things or do you leave? You know, and to me, this is another fight or flight yang versus parasympathetic yin is that staying and not running away and, you know, working through what happened and you did this because I did this, I did this because you did this, you know, and all the, um, and Shogun calls that like emotional ledgering, you know, it's like, I did this because you did this. Mm. It's all this kind of tit for tat. And one of the things she says is that MDMA throws the ledger out. None of that shit really matters. Let's get down to like the deeper stuff, you know? And I'm, I'm absolutely believer in MDMA really helping couples work through their issues. Um, and I, you know, I was a medical monitor on the MDMA PTSD uh, couple study that, and that study was really important to me because it was the first time that the sort of government didn't just allow us to give MDMA to people with PTSD, but they allowed us to give MDMA to people who didn't have PTSD, who were adjacent to the PTSD sufferers. So people who were in a dyad and one of them had PTSD and one of them was staying with them and trying to help them. So to give both those people MDMA so that they can just have a good sort of guided couples experience. Wait, was that, a, um, I was was that really, the Mithoffer study or was that somebody? It was a MAP study, but it wasn't Mithoffer. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ann Wagner, Candace like Monson. I know it kind of, it, it went a little under the radar, but it, it was published a few years ago. I can, I can send uh, Candace, Candace Monson, Ann Wagner, two of the women that I know are on the study. I'm, I'm blanking on the men's names. Go figure. <laughs> well, you know, that, one of the things feels, I did. That feels essential. In, Right, like, it, like, no, it's important. It's, I mean, it's important, and there'll be there will be eventually more studies like that. But it was definitely the first of its kind. Um, one of the things I did in good chemistry was I really tried to uh, say their names, the women in the psychedelic research space, mm-hmm. um, because the, the the men seem very good at getting in uh, onto the documentaries and getting interviewed in the the magazines. Um, and there are a lot of women in psychedelic research and like, you'd never know it, you know, like everybody's Matt Johnson and Roland Griffiths and, and Rick and, you know, Steve Ross and all these guys, 
um, Michael Bogus, you know, uh, Charlie Grove, they're lovely. I love them. They're all great. There's, they're really great guys. But the thing is that if you go to their labs, the people who are really doing the grunt work and the day-to-day -day work and writing the protocols and writing the papers and running the participants and doing all that stuff, they're like the women right behind the men. And so one of the, the things- The Masters and Johnson effect. Yeah. So we forget chemistry. I made a point of sort of interviewing a lot of women in the space who are doing really good work and aren't getting the FaceTime. Ros um, Watts. Imperial, right? Rosalind, right. Rosalind Watts is in the book. Um, Catherine McLean is in the book. This woman, Gould Dolan, I don't know if you heard her speak. She was at Horizons on Friday. Really mm -hmm. interesting stuff about, about neuroplasticity. That reminds me. Plasticogens, terrible word. Oof. Plasticogens, <laughs> like not good, but is, we- Is it a word? Is it, is it actually? If someone's trying to make it a word, you know, there's certain words like entheogen and tactogen, you know, that may or may not make it. Plasticogen's low on that list of words that's going to make it, but the idea is good. And the idea is that there's, there are certain medicines or drugs that induce a temporary, a, a temporary neuroplastic state in the brain where the brain is more open to input and more impressionable. I mean, you know, again, uh, I know I mentioned the, the Manson LSD thing sort of in, in jest, but like more impressionable means good and bad, right? Sure. Like in the right hands, more impressionable means uh, I'm no longer going to wash my hands 30 times a day and worry about germs. You know, I've made a decision, but it, uh, it could also be for nefarious purposes. But um, for, for people who have got this sort of cognitive rigidity, you know, whether it's like anorexia nervosa and the thinking is um, no matter how much weight I lose, I'm still too fat, you know, or uh, being, being paranoid, maybe you have schizophrenia or you're just delusional about uh, QAnon or whatever, but like fixed beliefs that are not accurate, you know, cognitive rigidity. Uh, this drug is good for me. I love heroin. It feels good to me. I'm going to keep using it because it, it makes me feel better. It makes my life better. Like that's cognitive rigidity. You've got, you've got sort of misinformation that you're very tied into and that's how you're going to live your life. So it's a, it's a transdiagnostic phenomenon. And what, what a medicine that increases plasticity does is it, it, inject some flexibility into the cognitive rigidity. And well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Well, what if you think about it another way? And, and it, it's a chance for the brain to really do a little rewiring. I'm putting this in quotes. Um, you know, we know that the, that, the, that the neurons, the brain cells make new uh, sort of dendrites, like new arms, they make new synapses, which is new connections with other brain cells. Um, we know that, that ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, ibogaine. These things all increase plasticity in the brain for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And it looks like, and Gould Dolan's research really strongly suggests that the shorter acting medicines open the window for a shorter period of time. So you have something like ibogaine where the experience could last up to 72 hours, right? Ibogaine is an incredibly long psychedelic experience. <clears throat> the neuroplastic window looks like it may be open for as much as four weeks. And you take something like ketamine where it's really a couple of hours, really short, neuroplastic windows only open a couple of days. The ones in the middle, MDMA, psilocybin, they last four to six hours. The window lasts a couple of weeks. LSD lasts a little longer. Window lasts maybe three weeks, somewhere between MDMA, psilocybin, and ibogaine. So shorter acting plasticogen, shorter window of neuroplasticity that you're working with. But any neuroplasticity is good plasticity, you know, any rewiring, any rethinking, um, 
gee, maybe it could be a different way. I mean, that those are those are the moments that you live for in psychotherapy, you know, where these aha moments were like, you know, it could just as easily be this as that. Maybe I should look at it yeah. that way. But so that, that is important, though. I think in, in your description, you're describing some therapeutic dialogue that could just be arising in my own head. Like, do I need to think this way the same thing? But it's, it almost sounds like you're presencing a therapeutic partner there to help the person navigate out of their muscle memory fixity. It would help more expansive options or possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it would help. And that's, but this is why it's so important that we make sure that the people doing this work uh, don't have any nefarious ends in mind, you know, because if somebody is in a plastic state, a suggestible state, an increased trusting and bonding state, they can be more easily taken advantage of, you know, and, and one of the things I sort of got on, you know, the stage about in Horizons was that um, these are really serious breaches of trust and ethics, and we do need to air it out. We do need to talk about it. There's a lot of talk in the psychedelic community now about a few bad actors here and there, but the truth is like in therapy, the most common sort of bad outcome in regular psychotherapy is this interpersonal trauma from the therapist where there's some acting out uh, boundary transgressions, whether it's sexual or just like inappropriate friendships. I mean, you know, you're really supposed to maintain a doctor patient relationship or therapist client relationship. And in regular psychotherapy, there are a lot of boundary violations that lead to very bad outcomes. In psychedelic assisted therapy, we're gonna have the same problem. Yeah, well, I think like Matt Johnson wrote that piece um, last year on, hey, don't smuggle in your worldview. You know, like if you're if you're dealing with an impressionable impressionable patient, yeah. and you're saying, oh, you've just had a soul birth, or you've just contacted your you know your star guardians, or here's my Buddha. You know, like even just subtle micro new agey right. vibey things are sort of you know as smuggling in of an ontology that may or may not be with full consent yeah. to the patient. And then that recent you know obviously quite. Um, pronounced one on some of the West Coast underground therapists where you're sort of like, oh, yeah. okay, so now we're in, a, with, with the underground, you're obviously decoupled from many of the checks and balances of professional and credentialed work, but right. people are into this kind of no man's land between clinical psychotherapeutics within a medical thera therapeutic model within some sacred sacramental initiatory experience, and then maybe some psychosexual tantric thing you know, which is, which could even just be advanced trauma work and integration, which almost always includes some of the sexual arousal circuitry, you know, but, but yeah. so pe people are kind of making it up as they go. They're subject to their own right. shadows, blind spots, weaknesses, or even pathologies like scout monsters and, you know, and priests drawn to the, you know, to, to, to abusive children, right? Sometimes people are pulled into those spaces because of the power dynamics. And if they, even if they came in with good intent, they might get right. bent by the power dynamics or the susceptibility. Well, I don't know if you saw Laura May Northrup's talk at Horizons, but she was saying that in, in many of the people that she's interviewed who have been sort of victims of the psychedelic assisted therapy where there have been transgressions, a Oof. lot of those people have a history of being abused sexually um, in childhood. And that some of the traumatizers, therapists also have a history of being abused sexually. And that, you know, there's just like this, uh, chain of events that keeps happening and and you know her solution is that we have to focus on the healers 
the healers need to be healed. You know, the people doing this work need to do their own healing or they need to get themselves healed because they're going to they're going to perpetuate this trauma onto other people. Mm -hmm. And the issue with the underground community and even above ground, like we don't really have, you know, a certifying board. We don't have people who sit for their boards. There's no oral boards like, oh, you know, as a as a doctor, I had to take so many different exams, licensing exams, relicensing exams, continuing medical education um, and you know, you, you sit for your boards and it's like, you know, there's written boards, there's oral boards. Um, but the point is there is a mechanism for getting certified, staying certified, making sure that, you know, you're doing all the things you're supposed to be to be a good doctor. We don't have anything like this yet for psychedelic assisted therapists, right? There's no board certification program. There's no certification. You know, some people are going to be trained by MAP. Some people are going to go to Fluence. Some people are going to get trained at Horizons, but like, who decides you've had enough training, you haven't? Well, I mean, there's, there's two nerd questions, tech science questions that I'd love to ask you. I'll see if we have enough time for them, but I, I, I wanna ask you one okay. because you're probably uniquely positioned to it. So in my, in my researching of kind of the role of embodiment and specifically everything you described, right? That we're just sort of mouths with tubes and assholes at our kind of primal worm level and that there is this spasmodic, traumatic, you know, both storing and dislodging of trauma and that it seems to connect with brainstem activities, quite a bit of vagal nerve and endocannabinoid system. And if you look at the kind, if you go put them side by side, the endocannabinoid system and the vagal, vagal tone, right, or the vagal system seem to yeah. do an awful lot of really similar things. They seem to be profoundly metronomic in the sense they sort of set the rhythms of a bunch of things from inflammation to interoception to bone growth to you know to tissue growth to cellular stuff to hormonal stuff to you know as you said infant mother suckling and pair bonding and there's just an awful lot of overlap and it's kind of gobs i mean obviously body keeps the score and peter levine and some of that work is boosting you know even porges polyvagal might overstep the bounds of exactly everything the vagal nerve does but don't you don't you say anything bad about stephen porges okay well, well, <laughs> overstep what well, what i was what, no. well i was talking about i was talking with lisa feldman barrett and she's just kind of like yeah not that is a theory you know it is a not, big theory yeah right? it's, but the point it's being a is pretty that, exquisite theory but it may it may not be 100 accurate but i mean so but your point is that the endocannabinoid system is like everywhere you want to be when it comes to the parasympathetic vagal tone sort of thing yes and what's the interrelationship between those two because they sure feel like they're kind of they're they totally are yeah i mean you know when i think of like the pharmacology of fight or flight that's like adrenaline norepinephrine epinephrine and then and cortisol that's sort of how i think of sympathetic is like cortisol adrenaline and then when i look at parasympathetic i, I put you know the the endocannabinoid system sort of as like that's the juice that runs the parasympathetic system you know there's oxytocin but how does oxytocin really get it done mostly through the endocannabinoid system i also know that we are still i won't say infancy i'll say like we're in our adolescence about what we know about the endocannabinoid system um you know we're still figuring out like extra receptors you know they have cb1 cb2 and then a bunch of things that are vying to be cb3 um and there's there's more and more, I think, that we're sort of figuring out about the human endocannabinoid system. So I, I do feel like uh, it's it's the main thing that, that can put us in parasympathetic, although I would argue that opiates also do a pretty good job putting you in parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we've got our own, 
you know, great endorphin system. Um, well, well, what are this? Because obviously people tend to equate, and my, my, my assumption is that many of the, you know, outlandish truth claims of like cannabis does all these amazing things for you. It was actually really saying the endocannabinoids the parasit- are powerful, right? right? Or even, it could even just be like, you can substitute cannabis with parasympathetic, like whatever mm-hmm. the parasympathetic system is, mm-hmm. all the things that, that cannabis is saying it does are really things that you would do if you were in parasympathetic, right? That your body would repair itself, that your yeah. inflammation would go down. Those are yeah. things that naturally happen in parasympathetic. Yeah. And you're more open to social connections. Although some people get pretty closed down with pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's right there's there's growth hormone, there's stem cell growth, there's there's the anti-inflammation cytokine storm and TBIs. There's all sorts of like explicit biomechanical stuff. But just what would be the top three other than you know consuming cannabis to help prompt the endo you know basically endocannabinoids or anandamide in our system so just just so folks can hear so i mean you know anything that puts you in para i think is going to end up priming the endocannabinoid system so the Mm -hmm. the things that i tell people to do for para uh just breathing in and out through your nose is already better than anything else and if you can have a longer exhale than inhale Mm -hmm. so you know like breathing in for four and out for six just through your nose that can help put you in para singing chanting talking about yourself, that's all going to be a long, slow exhale, going to make you feel a little better. But, you know, the obvious things are like being held, cuddling, hugging, um, sex that isn't too uh, sympathetic. (laughs) You know, if you can manage to have sort of like gentle sex, uh, because usually sex is really a combination of sympathetic and parasympathetic and gas and brakes. But um, eye contact, laughing, that's a big one. I think that, um, you know, the thing I, I, that I remember and that I said at the beginning of, of Horizons is that you really can't learn and integrate knowledge if you're in fight or flight. You know, I mean, obviously when you're in fight or flight and there's really an emergency, you are sort of, you do have heightened awareness, but it's not a place of like learning and integrating information. So um, if laughing puts you in parasympathetic, then there really is something to be said for like, uh, you know, a comedy movie that has like a, an important message, you know, because you're going to be in parasympathetic. Yeah, but you may, you may actually integrate that information because you are very open to it because you're relaxed because laughter sort of is disarming and, and um, any, you know, a lot of breath work, I think can get you into, into parasympathetic, but the easiest thing is just exhale longer than inhale in and out through your nose better than anything mouth breathing is usually fight or flight yeah and then and then final ones because this is this is my deepest question is is the role and relationship of um fundamentally delta waves brainstem reset right in kind of defragging our nervous systems and simultaneously providing some form of disembodied high information high salience interior interior state so Carl Dyserath's work at Stanford, right, where he's done the work with ketamine, mice, and I believe it's epileptic people, and then has then has been able to find that was like a three hertz signal, gone back without the ketamine, and then re-stimulated three hertz and prompt dissociative experience, and the dissociative state tends to have the antidepressant positive effects. Yeah. So ketamine does it, the MIT anesthesiologist studies on nitrous oxide doing prompting double amplitude delta wave states for three to 12 minutes until it normalizes, you know, back to Herb Benson stuff at Harvard with, you know, the sort of the nitric oxide and brainstem research, you're like, okay, there's something really interesting. And yeah, it even is. shows up with 
five MEO with like the radar plots of like cross hemispheric delta wave activity at peak. And you're like, well, wait, we know that those states are massively meaningful, high salience, high significance as far as the information and experience, the interior. We're also tracking that it seems to have something to do with, you know, almost flatlining our, our brain waves down to the super slow delta. And we know that there's some interaction with deep brainstem kind of just like hit the global system reboot, which I'm imagining would allow parasympathetic, we'd probably come back into a homeostatic parasympathetic state, right, of, of, of integration afterwards, so back to your neuroplastic thing. So is that, you know, at least I've you know, stuck my neck out saying, I think this is arguably the kind of, this is the 21st century scientific protocol descriptor of what was likely involved, not all every time, but most of these in most yeah. ancient and esoteric death rebirth practices. How does that track for you? Um, it all tracks pretty well. I got, I got a little distracted when you were talking about the, seat, the three cycle per second. Um, one of the things that got me really interested very early on in brainwaves was um, something called a, a petty mal seizures, which are like absence seizures, yeah. which is uh, lights on, nobody's home. You know, the if, uh, unlike the seizures where people are shaking or, or uh, you know, there's a, there's a tonic phase and a clonic phase to a, a grandma seizure. So um, these are not grandma, they're small, they're petty mal. And the absence is just like somebody's looking, but they're just like this. Like, it's almost like you're in a daze, like lights on, nobody's home. But it turns out in those episodes, the entire brain is synchronized to three cycle per second not just one area of the brain. And as I was just like, that is so cool. So um, I'm very interested in this. It's like, uh, it, that's an endogenous altered state where you're just not even really there. You know, it's it's like a very deep, you know, when you're daydream, I mean, when I daydream, I don't want people to shake me out of a daydream. I love being in a daydream. I love that. I'm not, what are you thinking about? Nothing, not, I'm just like, you know, just for a minute, you just kind of zoned out. So I don't know how that correlates with an altered state, but I, I, definitely buy into this idea that psychedelics have effects on brain waves and that, you know, whether you're in Delta or Theta or what's happening with the drug experience, that is going to have uh, an impact on, you know, what your, what your experience is. And also whether you're, I would say, whether you're in parasympathetic or not. Well, um, what, what do those folks report back when they come back from a petty mall with like, oh my gosh, you'll never believe it. Or is it just like what, like complete amnesia and no nothing, recall? nothing, just nothing. What were you thinking? Nothing. I just, I wasn't thinking it's, I, you know, I wasn't even there. Was there, is there, is there awareness of self and passage of time or none of that either? I believe there is no awareness of self or of self or passage of time in a petty mall. I mean, mm. it, they call it absence because the person's mm -hmm. just not there. Where did you go? Don't know. What did you think? I didn't. Mm. Um, so, and that makes it very different, I think, from these psychedelic experiences where we, you know, we come back with a story, you know, like even 5-MEO, you know, where did you go? I don't know where I was, but there were these little people and there was this thing, you know, like you come back having sort of been somewhere, you don't remember all of it, but you remember some of it. I mean, most people with a 5-MEO experience have like a really weird story of like, they don't just say my my brain turned off. Um, no, I don't know. No, I, do not. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I think, especially with this like kernel headset now, I think we're just going to get more and more data about um, brain waves and what correlates to what state. Um, it is not my area of expertise at all. Mm -hmm. So I, 
you know, it all sounds very interesting to me and I, and I'm curious about it, but I definitely don't have any, any pronouncements, I would say about any sort of EEG information whatsoever. <laughs> but it does feel, I mean, I'm, all the trees we've been barking up, right? From, yeah. we've, we've spoken about music, we've spoken about substances, we've spoken about respiration, we've spoken about embodiment, parasympathetic systems, role with trauma, role with peak states, neuroplasticity, both reworking our stories, but also our neural networks. You know, it feels like we are in these early and interesting phases, and you've been tracking this for your whole career, right? Is what is sort of an integrated model of human healing and becoming. And, and it's, and it's super interesting, um, yeah. to, uh, you know, both the power and the possibility, but also just how early we are in that adventure. I like that, you know, and I think, I think that you could say that the whole sort of psychedelic community is, is in that adolescent phase. You know, we had a lot of sort of fits and starts and the, and the childhood back in the sixties and seventies, we're not where we want to be yet. We are really in this, like, today I am a man. I'm like, no, you're not a man. You're 13. You know, like that's kind of where we are right now where, um, and you know, what's great about adolescence is it's really a time of, you know, of tremendous neuroplasticity and particularly you are exquisitely sensitive to social input in your adolescence. You really care about what your peers think of you, you know? So this is the time, you know, if we are in our adolescence and this is a time of growth and, and maybe being in that tragedy place of, you know, it's not all going to be, you know, roses and chocolates and bonbons. And, and, you know, we do have some problems and we, and we need to sort of get through this awkward, you know, teenage pimple faced adolescence in our community so that we can uh, grow up to be big and strong, you know? Beautiful. Well, Julie, thank you. Um, and thank you, thank you for bringing you know the, the full package of you, right? The irreverent person, the woman's perspective, the academic and researcher, the practitioner, uh, and even dare I say the activist. Um, but thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. 
This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.